Kiara. Welcome to Voices of Resilience Radio. Welcome to Voices of Resilience Radio. This show provides real stories of resilience and post-traumatic growth from people like me who have lived through trauma and difficult times during childhood, adolescence, and or adulthood. This show talks about what is strong, not what is wrong. It challenges a deficit approach in therapy and mental health and focuses on a strength-based approach. If you'd like to be part of this show and talk about your story of resilience or post-traumatic growth, please contact me from my website at chrissygilmore.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-S-Y-G-I-L-L-M-O-R-E.com. So welcome to Voices of Resilience Radio. Hi, Hi, Mary, would you like to introduce yourself? My name's Mary Knight. I'm a filmmaker. I'm a retired social worker. I didn't think I was very creative until, oh, a few, well, several years ago when I started this new profession for myself. You didn't think you were very creative? No, as a social worker, I was studious. I was careful, but it took me, I'm 64 now, and I took a creativity class when I was 40. And it was around then that I started thinking of myself as a creative person and an artist. Oh, wow. Huh. That's really cool. I'd like to just say if you hear any background uh, noise, it is my uh, son with his friend, just so you know that in advance. Um, I've asked them to just kind of be quiet but they are children so sometimes it doesn't really work just so you know yeah and just for our listeners as well is it okay it's okay that's great <laughs> I didn't realize you were a mom that's wonderful oh thank you yeah hey so if you're okay to start the interview uh, we'll just get right into it hey I just wanted to know if you could give us some context for the listeners about what happened to you as a child, adult, adolescent, and um, what made you resilient? And I don't mean that lightly. I mean that with, you know, that this is really important. Mahi, as we say in New Zealand, it's, it means work. This is really, this is a really important um, thing to do is to share our story when we feel or if we feel comfortable with it. So yeah, if you're okay to do that. Yes. I will try to be brief with that. I was abused so much that it can take a long time to describe it. I want to share enough though that people who have had similar experiences will know that I that that's my story as well. I'm a survivor of ritualistic abuse. And many survivors of ritualistic abuse are not comfortable speaking out, which I understand. I'm very thankful that I am able to talk about it. It's sometimes called satanic ritual abuse. Also, I'm a survivor of human trafficking, which most survivors of ritualistic abuse were trafficked as children. Um, sometimes they didn't actually see the transaction, the money exchange hands, but I did. So I know for certain that my parents, my parents were my pimps. Um, I am a survivor of child pornography, which is another type of human trafficking as well as um, being prostituted by my parents. 
and I am a survivor of both my parents sexually abused me. So I'm a survivor of male as well as female sexual abuse. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate you sharing that. And anything that you, and I do want to also say, this is your time. So you take as much time as you want, really, in terms of sharing your story. And there isn't this is this is about you. This is your floor. So if you want to share more, you're more you're most welcome to. Um, and thank you so much. But I'm ready to get into the. Okay. It's great. That's what you're. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Hey, also, I I wanted to mention that you have made a film about your background. Did you want to share about that? Did you want to yeah. share some about that, and as well as what you're going to be working on, or what you are working on right now? Yes, I decided I wanted to make a film about my childhood. And um, I came up with the title. When I woke up with this title, I thought, oh, this could work. Because in documentary filmmaking, you need a question. You need tension. Mm. Sometimes people, there are people who do not believe that my memories are true. I remembered my abuse at age 37. So I have been called crazy. So I decided to make that my title. Am I crazy? My journey to determine if my memories are true. This is a film about recovered memory. I also will tell about the fun film. I did make a fun film that's fictional. PG-13 comedy, Sister Mary's Angel. It's about identical twin sisters, a nun and a lingerie model who have to trade places because the lingerie model has an urgent need for medical treatment, no insurance, no savings. <laughs> and this is before in the United States, before Obamacare. So the lingerie model moves into the convent. Um, it's a it's a fun film and there is the backstory that they were abused as children but for the most part it, you laugh more than you cry in it oh that's beautiful laughter is a real form of resilience as well so um i, I love that what's that film's name what's the title of that film sister mary's angel sister mary's angel i think you said it but i didn't write it down oh i love that i love that so did you want to talk a little bit about your film? Because I watched it this morning, just before we get into the resilience, because I think it is so powerful. And I, and I, and I wrote quite a bit about this when I was watching your film, um, Am I Crazy? Did you want to talk about that a little bit more as well? Because I think that sure. this is- I love talking about my film. <laughs> I think you bring up- my films kind of like my children, you know, like, you know, like they're my daughters. I love <laughs> I it. And so my films are my daughters. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. You bring up some really important points and questions about believing people who have memories that came up, as you said, when you were 37. And I know this isn't exactly resilience questions. However, I think that, I think it's interesting how you, you may have, or I don't know if you intuitively, or maybe a mixture of a little bit of both with creativity, 
ended up being a filmmaker and being and and using film as a way of expressing your story and and bringing up some really important points about believing um, people's memories. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I started out writing, and so I, I wrote the script for Sister Mary's Angel, and that's what got me going toward filmmaking. I wasn't able to sell the script, so I made the film. <laughs> and I hadn't thought of myself as a visual artist until, you know, I started noticing things. You just need to notice as, as it's edited together, and I realized I do have a good eye. Um, so I was already a filmmaker and I was ready to speak publicly about my childhood. So the two came together. I know that in film you want tension. So there's nothing that is more tension producing than for me to sit across from someone who does not believe my memories are true. Someone who will say recovered memories are, are not valid. It was my way of confronting my parents who were already deceased. So I interviewed people who remind me of my parents. Oh, I love that. That's so interesting. Did you do that? Did you think of that when you did that or was it kind of more intuitive? Yes. You did. Okay. I was aware of that. The first person wow. I interviewed was um, uh, Dr. Pamela Fried. Pamela Fried started the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. There's actually an organization, a nonprofit organization in the United States, uh, recently closed, but um, it was so active in the early 90s and is a reason why the media promoted the idea that memories like mine are false. Um, the organization was very good at organizing, I guess you'd say. This organization was founded by um, Pam Fried and her husband. They are the parents of Dr. Jennifer Fried, who was and is a psychology professor at the University of Oregon. Okay. She is a, is a researcher, very intelligent, very credible person. When she was in her early 30s, she remembered paternal incest so her father sexually abused her mm. and she talked to her parents about it and how they handled it was they really really quickly formed this organization mm. one of the people they contacted to help with the organization is a psychiatrist dr underwager who actually has been interviewed and has gone on record um, there's written uh, written interview um, by uh, a journal that's express purpose is to promote pedophilia and he says that um, all forms of sexuality should be celebrated including um, pedophilia oh. um, so he was on the board initially and then after that article came out there was so much criticism of it for rightful reasons that he's no longer, that he was no longer on the board, but his, his wife and then later widow was on the board until it closed. So 
this, these were people involved in the organization. Um, and that's one reason the organization grew so quickly is that they had, you know, he already had a mailing list accumulated. Oh, anyway, nice. the people in this organization say that recovered memories are not true or that you should be skeptical of them. Dr. Elizabeth Loftus was also on the board in, until it closed. And she, um, I interviewed her for the film, Am I Crazy? Now, my first interview, though, was with Pam Fry, the founder of this organization. And I um, didn't include her interview in the film I've already done, but I'm doing another film, Mothers and Molestation, a film about child abuse. And I will include her footage in that film. Okay. Um, and I'll include also footage of me at my mother's grave. Um, my film that I'm currently finishing, Mothers and Molestation, deals a lot with my own mother and with coming to terms with having a mother like that. It's really my, my resilient ending is that I've realized I need to be my own mother. I get to be my own mother. Mm. And um, that's how I deal with having had a mother like I had. Wow. So you get to be, you get to mother the child within you potentially. And um, yeah. yeah, and to continue with that um, as part of healing. Yes. Wow. Thank you so much. I've got some, some notes that I'd like to share with you as well. Um, if that's okay here. Yes. Okay. So I saw a lot of power dynamics because what I love, I don't love that this happens, but the tension, as you point out, um, about memories and can we trust memories? And I'd like to suggest that there were a lot of power dynamics at play and that this is something that we experience because myself, I've been through childhood sexual abuse as well when I was very young. However, I, I have memories and I had those memories throughout my life. So I didn't experience so much uh, a merging of memories maybe into my subconscious that kind of happened. And I have had some memories and thank goodness I personally was believed because that is a really important part of our healing journey is, to, is the child wants to be believed. Definitely. Oh yeah. And I saw these power dynamics in your film um, with, to you, with the adult voices in the film. So that we, that we used adult voice, that you used adult voices. There's research um, against, or, you know, supporting more, more like um, that memories really shouldn't be trusted. Uh, you had people who were very credible, professors, um, and even you found that, is it the minister didn't want to actually end up being in your film? Right. He, yeah. he apologized to me off camera, but he wouldn't let me, he will not let me use any footage, mm. which I do not know how to interpret. But I did get to, I mean, you're referring to the footage of me going back to my childhood church. I was sexually abused on church property. Um, child pornography was made on church property. And I went back to that church and I 
that was a good experience for me to go back as an adult and to feel safe. Mm. Yeah, I bet it, I bet it was. And maybe even for your child in inside of you to, to have you, you as the mother potentially being there holding your child now safe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's an interpretation. mm -hmm. Yeah. I hadn't had as much work regarding my mother at that point. Um, That time when I went to the grave, it was more about confronting my dad. Mm -hmm. But also at that time, because as you know from watching my film, I had a sister who died. She died of cancer Mm -hmm. when she was 11 and I was nine. But part of going to the church was... Uh, and I won't go into more than that, but it it had to do with something about my relationship with my sister. And I really loved my sister. Her name was Ruth. Mm. So going back to the church helped me to regain that sisterhood with her. Or I mean, I kind of did it for her, and I mm. dedicated that film to her. Uh, so one thing I like about having made that film is like one of my longtime friends, when she saw it, she said, I never had seen a picture of your sister Ruth. So I just, she gets to kind of live in that film. Um, and she was a good part of my life. She mm. always was a good part of my life. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, having a good, positive relationship, um, especially going through really tough times. And that can be really a really good way of, um, good form of resilience for us. I do love also how, like I saw some more power dynamics, um, such as your child or children in general, um, being able to speak up and having, having people, adults expect that children will use their voice um, as children to tell people what's happening. Um, I thought that that was quite powerful um, because I can see the the vulnerability of children and that's why some of these people they prey on children is because they are vulnerable much more vulnerable than adults and to think that a child would be able to use their tool of of their speech is and even put together connect their speech with these feelings they may be trying to push away that they're not capable of um, handling yet is something that is beyond me. I just don't understand how someone would be able to even consider that, but that's because I'm a counselor. So this is, I'm sitting in a different role here. Um, And also as someone who's gone through that myself, part of my healing journey has been to trust my body. Yes. Mm. Oh, that's been very important to me. I I didn't have much body awareness. Mm. But one thing, the people who say, why didn't you tell, if it's true, why didn't you tell someone when you were a child, are the same people who don't believe me now. Mm. And that's something that former Miss America, Marilyn Vanderveer said just very elegantly in my film that, you know, if they're they're not going to believe us now, who's going to ever believe a child? Mm. Um, So... Yeah, I was really glad. I was so glad when she was in my film because she's like one of my heroes. She went public. Uh, She went public in the early, uh, well, 
I remember my abuse in 1993 and she went public about her abuse in 1991, but she had remembered, she was uh, Crown Miss America in 1958, and she remembered just like in the early 60s. So when they talk about the early 90s being a time when so many people remembered, there were already people remembering the, the phenomena of, of delayed recall, of not remembering your abuse until you are safe enough to be able to talk about it mm. that's always been that's always been in existence mm. and i think it's a really i think it is a trait for resilience i think it really helped me that i didn't always have conscious knowledge of the abuse in fact i really only remembered my child abuse i was only aware of it while it was happening I've talked to some other survivors who remembered it until a certain age or whatever, but I don't remember an age of being aware of it. Um, maybe I do remember some abuse that occurred when I was probably four and my sister six that um, where they um, threatened our lives if we ever told. Um, so it becomes like, I mean, it's safer to not remember because then you don't have to worry about telling because you don't remember. Mm -hmm. um, and But also, it was really helpful to me to not always remember. It's like taking a vacation from the abuse. And I was able to develop in tandem with my peers because I didn't remember. Like, mm -hmm. I took sex education with the other little fifth grade girls and I was just as naive as them because I didn't remember. I was able to do well in school. I just don't see how I could have done so well in school had I, I had conscious knowledge because this was both of my parents. This was happening. Um, and other people, other survivors have delayed recall when it wasn't both their parents. So I don't want to overemphasize that. But I just... There was a part of me that sorry we can't hear you very well now oh i'm sorry there was a part of me that knew i wasn't safe but i wasn't very aware of that part of me yeah yeah and it sounds like the the incredible creative and intuitive power of our you know is of our bodies is also at force here and is is something that really does keep children safe and i think that sometimes research scientific research may not measure that because it's beyond being measured some of this i agree i and agree I, yeah and i think that um with another thing that i saw in your film was piecing memories together from different sources such as feelings and sensations and maybe struggling with what adults were saying compared to how you were feeling and yes mm, and i and i do think that that's a source of resilience as well for children to be able to push those memories away you know their bodies may i know for myself and what i've read intuitively push these memories away until children are ready to um, deal with some of these memories that are very strong and when they're more mature and when they're they're 
uh, psychologically able to handle some of these memories and then process some of these feelings that are kind of trapped in one's body. Um, and you and you also interviewed uh, what's his name, Victor Vander, Doctor Bessel Vander Koch. I was you. so excited when uh, when he said yes. I was just so excited. That's amazing. Um, he is yeah. he is my hero. Um, yeah, the body keeps the score. What a wonderful book! Um, yeah, it's it's a wow. wonderful book, and yeah, and I I like. I was just so glad he let me interview him. He, I thought I would need to fly to Boston for the interview, but he came to uh, Portland, Oregon for a. Uh, I, I was living in Portland, Oregon at the time. I'm I'm up in Washington State now, but. Um, so he gave this two-day intense oh. conference, and then he let me interview him right afterwards. Oh, man, that is that is beautiful and so serendipitous. And and I really noticed the difference between when you were just in your body, and even maybe it was some of my own feelings as well. Um, just between the interviews with someone who isn't such a isn't a strong believer of mem of memories kind of merging and then him where he really held you in that space oh, and, and it was a real soft gentle i yes. believe you and that is powerful so powerful yes yeah and it sounds like you did a lot of processing from that interview as well I did. I did. Cause he kept saying like, Oh, there's something else you need to deal with here. And he was right. And it was about my father. Mm -hmm. So I, I really, yeah, he, he, he was helpful with that. Mm -hmm. And he has, I mean, he's a researcher. He's a psychiatrist, neuroscientist. Mm -hmm. He has research. Mm -hmm. There's, there's, the research that shows that memories like mine are valid is Absolutely. much better research than some of the, mm. the, the, uh, he pointed out, you can't do research in a, in, in a lab on someone being oh. raped because you can't rape mm. someone in a lab. And no. so, mm. you know, his research, yeah, he, it, he's done as a neuroscientist, you know, they've, they've made, great advances in understanding the human brain that help us to understand more about how delayed recall or how traumatic memory works. Mm. And it, it kind of brings up this quote from, there's another book, In an Unspoken Voice by Peter A. Levine. He's a, a yeah. PhD. Oh, I like him too. Oh, yeah. oh my gosh. And he says, um, and I think he might be quoting someone, I can't remember, but it's in this book, hurt is psychological, healing is spiritual. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And something about, there's something about how healing is beyond, we have to, in my opinion, and I'm seeing in indigenous research, uh, is that we need to be able to kind of, there's got to be, we can't just, in my opinion, we can't just focus on what's credible because a lot of science, like there's, especially in our Western society, we want things, we want to be able to see that things are measured and we want to see that we can put our, um, 
we can we can put some sort of belief into knowledge but what we're finding in for instance even the diagnostic statistical manual is that and i'm going to say this even though it's not going to be maybe popular is that some of these disorders that people have put on clients they're not reliable and i i think that there's some of this in the book in an unspoken voice and there's there is research backing this up as well and another one scott dr scott miller talks about this in his book the heroic client and this is about how science has and diagnosing people has kind of almost undermined people's narratives and their stories and their healing journeys um and that's another whole topic but um i think that only i think it's you know the the fact that medical mental health mental health is largely organized by medical health but healing is not the same as medical health it's not the same process um and and i feel a little bit sad that you know we we need to put more focus on on sometimes more qualitative research and not having to and i don't know how people are going to get out of that but not just measuring and expecting doctors um you know putting because people can research different doctors can research this and this and this and then someone else can research this and this and this and then they can oppose it um and even research like how credible is that research and someone who isn't involved in research might not um you know know this information about the importance of research being credible um and like you said some of these things you can't research in a clinical setting um yeah right so, well yeah. like even the focus of recovered memories has always been on are there are they valid and people haven't looked at how helpful they are um it helped me a lot to have good friendships because my you know i i was able to not know about my abuse and so i tended to have friends who were, I, I had some friends who came from really good families and they were kind of the high achiever kids like me. So um, the, it, it helped me to get a lot of my needs met mm -hmm. and then to remember so that by the time I remembered my views, I'd already like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the triangle, mm -hmm. I'd already fulfilled even up to some of the self-actualization needs. Instinctively? Hmm. Belonging. Well, I, I, I have a strong spiritual connection, so I guess I would, Maslow says it's an inborn, you know, we have an inborn desire to self-actualize. So yeah, and I guess it would be instinctively, yeah, inborn. But I was able to fulfill, I, I, the last needs I've had met are really the safety needs, which would be the, the um, what would be considered, Maslow would consider the lower needs, the physical needs. One is safety and feeling safe in my own home has been a recent thing for me, which I'm very happy to 
feel completely safe and, and happy. I've, I've been married uh, for 10 years now. Oh, and during that time, I, yeah, I'm really happy about that. Mm. But, um, but I fulfilled some of the other needs, like the need for belongingness, the friendships. And then when I remembered my abuse, I cut ties with everyone, uh, with my mother, with my father. I, um, and I only had contact with, I had um, an aunt and three cousins who remembered before I did. So those, those were the relatives I had contact with, but I broke contact from, you know, it was huge to break contact from my parents though I was 37. But fortunately, I, I wasn't at all financially dependent on them. I just, it was much different than had I been young to do that. Yeah, big time, eh? Um, and also, hey, I was just wondering if you can tell me, what does resilience mean to you? I knew that question would end up here. <laughs> so I decided I think resilience is the set of skills that allow us to do two very important things. And one of those important things is be happy. And the other important thing is to fulfill our purpose in life or to um, find meaning in life. Nice. So fulfill our purpose in life, like that's really loaded. Do you, do you want to talk more about how you've fulfilled your purpose in life, if that's okay? I tell people that my film, the one you saw this morning, is my life's work. Wow. I plan to be promoting that the rest of my life. I plan to be talking to people, survivors, as they see it. I'm, I'm willing to talk to survivors um, who have seen it and um, schedule a time, scheduled by email, but schedule a time to talk to them by phone. Um, I just see this as what I'm supposed to do in my life. And then, of course, I'm making the upcoming film about mothers and molestation, which joins that in, in my life's purpose because um, people who were molested by their fathers, it's horrible, horrible, but it's not as isolating as if you're incested by your mother because less people, uh, it happens less. And, and among the people it happens to, it's, it's just harder to talk about. So there's not many people talking about it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's another thing I'm doing. My, my life's purpose, I write the last two weeks, I just felt called to um, tell about something that happened in conjunction. I mean, I, I felt called to do it in conjunction with the what's happening in the United States related to Black Lives Matter and um, the activism. I um, my parents were in the Ku Klux Klan. They had a it was hidden. They didn't admit that at all, but they were. And um, I had an experience as a child, which I won't go into anymore. But it shows a connection. It shows that my parents connected their use of uh, child pornography with the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, I think that was a um, a place that I believe that was a place they sold uh, child pornography, not 
Hmm. Not that everyone in the Ku Klux Klan is a child pornographer or a, or a pedophile, but that there is a segment within that hate group that um, also um, um, shows hatred uh, toward children in that way. Um, so I, I just think, I think telling my story, telling my experiences, God's just really blessed me to where I'm able to have the kind of life now where I can speak out. And mm. I feel that's my, that's what brings meaning to my life. Mm. And it's, and what you said about this being your life's work, promoting and not even, I think promoting might not be the right word. Maybe continuing dialogue and discourse and allowing the unfolding and the unwinding of narratives to spiral into other people's lives. Because you said, you said that you would continue to talk to other people um, yeah. in terms. And, and to me, that is incredibly powerful to be able to continue that unwinding. It's almost like, um, mind the metaphor, but it's almost like the smoke of a cigarette that kind of weaves up and it keeps curling up and up and up. And it's, it's like that it, it just kind of continues up into the air. And that's what I see, like the extension of your voice and your film and the immense, tremendous amount of work and almost processing and, and, and kind of taking from your inner, you know, almost maybe your, your stomach in a way, your gut, you know, because I really see a lot of when people process things for myself and I see in other people, there's a lot that happens in the stomach area. Um, you know, like there's this kind of processing that occurs in our bodies. Um, I don't know if you feel that or. Oh yeah. Yeah. I noticed like my, I, I think there needs to be more research on women and how we use our uteruses even to process. I think there's something there. Um, but I got that from um, Clarissa Pinkola Estes, her book. The oh, body. Yes. Mm. oh yeah I love yeah. writing that's a, yeah. that's a good and and it's just I feel like there's a lot of processing and you're extending that that process and you're extending the power of your film into other women's lives very in, in a very personal way too with dialogue and that is that's massive yeah so and and there's something here about resilience and how resilience can be very intuitive. And I, I found that in a research study that I did um, and that I'm trying to publish with a supervisor at the university that I studied at, at Massey University in New Zealand. And yeah. I did this systematic literature review of all the research ever done qualitatively in English, because I only speak English, on women's, the lived experiences of women who had been through childhood sexual abuse. So what did they find, the lived experience of resilience? So what, what did they say about resilience? And the number one thing that I found was women needed really strong, positive relationships. And this is mostly um, Caucasian women, what we call Pakeha in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. um, and number two was journeying to build strength and take back power. Um, no, number two was, sorry, knowing that she is important and worth something. And I see that in your film, kind of, 
that validation of the child's voice to be believed that I'm believable. I can trust my own judgment. I can trust my memories and my beliefs and I will hold my child and I will, and I am important. I am worth something. And this is, this is my truth. Um, journeying to build strength and take back power. That was the third theme. So that was a lot of intuition in there. And yeah. journeying was a huge, huge metaphor with women. Seeing healing as a journey, not a destination. Building strength internally, mostly internally, and taking back their power. Um, very strong. And believing in a higher power was number four. So there are four main themes. Oh, that's so interesting. Oh, that's, yeah. that's great research. Yeah, a part of the journey, a part of it being a journey for me was that it's like I got ready to be strong enough to remember in various ways, but I, I got a master's in social work when I was 24 and I did, I, I accomplished some things in my profession. I've placed over a hundred children in adoptive homes. And then I started doing uh, divorce custody evaluations. Well, as a part of that, I needed to testify in court. If I, I would recommend, you know, one parent or the other, then that parent's attorney would want me to come testify if, if they still couldn't settle. And I, even my, I, I, would, I did these um, parenting time studies or divorce custody studies by court appointment. So the judges knew me and there was one judge who he actually told me, I, I'm always going to recommend, I'm, I'm always going to go with your recommendation. I trust you. You know, like he trusted mm. me that much. Yeah. Mm. And I think that that was before, shortly before I remembered um, so that confidence I had in my own intelligence, because mm. you're on the witness stand and there's an attorney who's trying to get you to say something stupid. And then mm. you instead say something really smart. Mm. It just made me feel smart. Um, and, and then it's the trust, the respect from the judges, um, really helped me to be ready. Um, and, it was horrible remembering. I don't want to minimize that at all. It was a, it just turned my world upside down. Um, I was very fortunate to already have relatives who remembered because then I could, when I remembered something, call one of them to get mm. some confirmation. Mm. Uh, and I, I'm well aware that that most survivors don't have someone like that they could call. Mm. And uh, I think that's one reason I've been able to do as much as that, that, that groundwork was already laid for me. Mm. Um, but yeah, definitely a part of the journey. And the other thing I want to say about it being a journey is that I think it's really, survivors can be really hard on themselves and it could be easy for someone to listen to me talk now about the good life I have now. And I do, I have a really good life now. Mm but they could judge themselves and say like, I, I'm not doing that. Well, one reason I'm doing that, I'm, I'm 64 years old. You can't mm -hmm. see me over the, over yeah. this podcast, but I have gray hair, completely gray hair. <laughs> I, 
I've worked really hard for a long time to get as well as I am now. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm very, I very aware of that. I don't want, I, I just don't think it's good to ever judge uh, mm -hmm. one person to another. And then the other thing is I still have healing I'm doing. I am still in uh, physical therapy. I get pelvic floor physical therapy, also called, also known as women's health physical therapy, mm -hmm. where the, um, the physical therapist does some internal work. I still have some um, digestive issues. And so I, I, I have pain. My right glute area that has not completely gone away, it's sometimes with the help of the physical therapy will go away for um, maybe as long as a couple of days, but that's still very much a part of my life. And um, I also would have a lot, I would have, um, a lot more chronic pain right now, except for I've already done yoga today. I do yoga oh, almost well every day. Okay. So I yoga, massage um, are a part of my life. I take a low dosage of antidepressant. I used to take a higher dosage. Um, so I, I just this week I got the realization that I need to be okay if that pain doesn't completely go away anytime soon right. that I need to just take it slow. Mm. And it's like, sometimes I can imagine myself just rocking that, mm. that sore part of my body, just like mm. almost like you would rock a little baby. That's lovely. Um, mm. and comfort. That's so beautiful. Cause it, it's like that part of you needs, needs a real lot of love and um, kindness and nurturing. It sounds like um, naturally. Mm. Hey, you've, you've kind of gone through some of the questions here and, but I'm just wondering if you wanted to outline some of the resilience factors that you've used you've talked about, well, you, you said that you have a master of education. So education has been known to be one of the ways, yeah. you know, knowledge education is power, isn't it? It was helpful to me. Yeah. Mm. And my parents were both college educated, which, yeah. um, so my mother was a, she had a home ec major. I was born in 1955 and she was a stay-at-home mom, college educated stay-at-home mom. And very, both parents, very intelligent. Their vocabulary, both of them had better vocabularies than I've ever had than I assume I'll ever have um so that is something I got genetically from them that has been helpful the intelligence uh but the the education one thing that happened for me was that I knew that school was a safe place School was always a safe place. I mean, church wasn't, you know, home wasn't, but school was. I really was blessed with some great teachers, but also I knew that at school, if you did, if you acted nice, you were treated nice. Mm -hmm. And at home that, you know, you might be severely abused for absolutely no reason. Um, well, I was severely abused for absolutely no reason. So there was no logical consequence kind of thing but I could tell that school was a place where I could excel and and could be nurtured 
and it was partly based on my own behavior. So I was very careful to be that good kid at school. Um, and, and that was, that worked well for me. Um, and then I just got, I just researched, I just love, you know, I, I got to where I really like research. I was raised in a church where the men had the power, mm. but part of the power was based on them knowing the Bible so well. So boy, I learned the Bible so well. And when I went to college that in this church, women could not be ministers, but I took Greek class, which it was almost, it was like all male because the Bible majors had to take it. It was hard learning Greek, but you could, you know, if you could read the original Greek text, then you had more power. Mm. Um, and, and I needed that. I knew I needed that. So that was the hardest class I ever took. I mean, including my master's degree, the three semesters I took Greek were the hardest classes I ever took. But, uh, and you only needed two semesters of Greek to graduate as a Bible major. So I was in with people who were taking it more advanced. Um, it, I, I, I just, I needed, um, yeah. I, and also the church I was raised in, I could say, you know, there were things that were not good for me in it, but the thing that was good in, it was, a. um, fundamentalist church that supposedly went straight by the Bible, but you were encouraged to read the Bible yourself and understand it. So that helped me too, because even as a teenager, I found an Old Testament Bible story that seemed to teach that women could be leaders. And so I started interpreting the Bible differently than my church from the time I was in high school. And I think that ability to research and determine things for myself intellectually really helped me. I couldn't, however, I, I didn't know how to listen to that deep voice inside. I mean, I, I've, I've learned that. That's been a part of my recovery to recognize that as being the most important voice to listen to. Mm, mm, the intuitive and it sounds like you it sounds like you had a lot of determination to to figure out what was in that bible and even from the greek text like that's amazing and with men um you know yeah. especially it sounds very patriarchal you know the men yes. in the church and here you are <laughs> it's, it's super stubborn i love it i think that's so yeah. clever <laughs> you're like i don't care if i'm the only woman in here hey no <laughs> i want to know what's in here <laughs> i think that's so clever i love that 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 um i don't know what is that word it's like it's grit isn't it it's real like you know yeah. like no i'm not gonna do this from the bottom of your soul it's like no Gonna, I'm going to be here and I'm going to take three classes, not yeah. two. It's so clever. I love it. Yeah. Another thing that helped me that I want to talk about was I just was kind of this born caregiver. And so I would, I would take care of children from the time I was pretty young. I'd be drawn to children and younger children. And I babysat um, from the time I was 
oh, not quite 12 years old. So I think that really helped me. The idea of nurturing someone as a way to get nurturing, as a way mm -hmm. to, it, it just nourished me and it mm -hmm. still does. And of course that was a part of the social work. Sometimes I took it too far and I really was fulfilling other people's needs and not mine. I'm aware mm -hmm. I did that. Mm -hmm. um, I loved being a mom. I'm mm -hmm. really glad I got to be a mom. And um, But now what I'm doing is um, I'll, I'll give a little shout out for foster care. Mm -hmm. So my husband and I are respite foster parents. And it's kind of like having grandkids because mm -hmm. we, um, when in, in our state, Washington state, foster parents are given two nights off a month and they usually take it as a weekend. Mm -hmm. And so when that child, when the foster parents want their weekend off, then the child stays with us. And we have four regulars, a girl and three boys. So um, we, you know, we get to have them. Um, uh, well, one of the little girls has been coming every other Wednesday and they've been coming even during uh, one of the little boys came during even during the uh, pandemic um, because he needed to be in daycare and his mom was a uh, his foster mom's a single mom so when he got kicked out of daycare then he stayed at our house um, on weekdays but um, it's something I really love to do oh, and I love hearing um, that mm. yeah yeah and mm. it's something that you know you can um, that anyone can do they just all over the world, they have such a need for foster parents. I didn't realize there were respite foster parents and you don't need to take a child. You can say no to the children or you can say no, more likely you say no to not this weekend, this weekend doesn't work or this day doesn't work. Um, and you can have regulars like we do. So it's you don't have to get a call if, um, you can tell them how many children you want. So you don't need to be concerned with getting calls and having to say no. Mm. And it sounds like it's nice for the children because they've got that, um, you know, that relationship with you as well. So they kind of know where they're going and what to expect. And it sounds like you really, really love these children, which is yeah. what we want, isn't it? Hey, and yeah. I'm wondering, I'm wondering when you were, you know the intuition and doing things quite instinctively and and how i'm noticing that a lot in resilience how our bodies kind of know what to do even though there's something holding us that's deeper and much wiser than maybe the child might be um at their age so it's almost like when you were babysitting children and when you do it now it's almost like maybe you know they're safe as well Oh yeah. Yeah. I Absolutely. Think that, I think that that is very powerful. Oh, um, it does. It feels mm. so good for these mm. kids to get I to bet. be safe. I bet. And, and just have fun mm. while they're here. Yeah. yeah it feels mm. so good. Oh, that's just beautiful and so healing. And, and we don't know when 
when these people grow up and if we don't know them later on, what kind of impact we have on these people, these children now, especially a positive impact. Um, and that really is a real source of resilience for them, for us, you know, we can do our own parallel kind of healing at the same time and kind of and nurture our own inner child um, knowing that these children are safe. There's something, there's something about that. I think it's very wise and very powerful. And I think it's very instinctive. And, and I would like to say that it, I don't know how that could be measured scientifically. Um, right. sorry, I'm just all about qualitative research. So I'm right. probably the other I, side. I, I, yeah. Yeah. And so I guess, do you have any beliefs or and words of wisdom that you'd like to give to listeners right now on their own healing journey about resilience and about what helped you be gentle with yourself. I would say be gentle with yourself. And one thing that has helped me is to think of it as a part-time job. Oh, I like that. It's a hard job. And just to give yourself credit. I mean, there's been times when I've had so much anxiety, I would listen to these um, CDs, these relaxation CDs. And there were days when I would listen three times to hour long. I mean, so three hours, but that was like, that was my work because that's what I needed. Um, or when I do yoga and it's, it is a job. It's a hard job and just really give yourself credit for it. Hmm. I think so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. Be gentle on ourselves and, and to consider it as, it is it's a it's something that we need to be consistent with and it, it's a really really important mahi i'm going to say that word again work but i love the word mahi because it's much deeper than just work it's um it's important work you know it's powerful um yeah thank you i really appreciate that is there anything that you wanted to add um I will say on my website, I have a list of how I got well. And I love that. Yeah, I'd like it. It's um, marynightprojections.com. And one of the pages is how I healed. I used to have fibromyalgia. And some people are like, you used to have fibromyalgia because some people say you can never heal from that. But I did. It was severe too. And I, as I've described, I have a little bit of pain now. But it's nothing compared to what it used to be. So I like to be able to share mm. ways I healed and provide that encouragement to people. I really feel like though, with fibromyalgia or other types of chronic pain, each person has their own recipe mm. for recovery. So I just told the various things. It's a long list of the things that were helpful to me but I really feel like each person needs to, you know, take a little of this or a little of that mm. and, and make it fit. One thing I did as I was being very serious about, I wanted to get rid of this pain. I read books about what you're supposed to read, of what you're supposed to eat, okay. Um, okay. not eat when you have fibromyalgia. And I just included all the things that you're not supposed to eat but there would be conflicts like someone one book would say well you should never eat fish and the other would say you need to eat fish 
two times a week. So obviously you can't do both. So I crossed those out and the others I all did, I did uh, to the extent of I quit eating chocolate for like 13 years. I can eat it again now, but um, it, it really ha did affect my pain during that period of time and not eating anymore was helpful to me. So yeah, I've worked really hard at recovery. And I think the other thing I would want to say is, but it's just so nice when you get kind of to this place. I really believe more strongly than I ever have that recovery is possible, not perfection, but just getting to a place where it is easy to be happy. And I'm there now. Oh, that's wonderful. And it sounds like you, it sounds like you went through a, a, a huge amount of growth. Um, and I, and I don't want to um, diminish the importance of growth as well. And, and how that in itself is a really important uh, stage that we, we kind of go back and forth into. Um, and I, and it's very positive to hear that you're feeling really happy and you're in a really good place. Like that to me is, is incredibly powerful. Um, and, and I love how you said that healing is unique for each person um, and, and how healing is very diverse. So take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and, and make it. And it sounds like it's really also rooted in, in connecting with our feelings and what's right yeah. for us. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really powerful part of healing, too, is connecting with our, our feelings in our body. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So I thank you. Thank you very much for this. I really appreciate you sharing your time today and sharing your wisdom and, and opening up and being vulnerable. And it's, it's a sign of real courage. So I, I really appreciate this today. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you for what you do. I just this today listened to your, your first two podcasts and they were both just wonderful. Um, so thank you. Cool. Thank you very much. Awesome. And I will also link that list of your things that you've done um, in terms of healing. And it sounds like resilience factors as well. And it's super long. Like I, I want to say that this is amazing um, what you've put there. So I will link it as well um, to this, um, to this podcast. Okay. Kiara, welcome to Voices of Resilience Radio. This is Voices of Resilience Radio. I hope you found this truly inspiring and uplifting and that you've gained some gems along the way of your healing journey. Remember to be gentle on yourself and go well. For more episodes just like this, please remember to subscribe on rss.com, Spotify, or from my website at chrissygelmore.com. I'd love to receive your feedback, suggestions, and you can provide this also on my website. If you'd like to be on the show, please fill out my Be My Guest web form also on my website. Keep shining your gorgeous light.